Brooklyn Emerging Voices Fellowship is a literary mentorship that provides new writers the tools to launch a professional writing career. Emerging Voices is the most amazing program that allows the writers to develop. It's the opportunity to have my work in the world, to get to the truth of my writing, to know that what I'm writing matters. America Emerging Voices podcast. This is episode three. We are here with the amazing Samantha Dunn today. Hi, three! Sam. Three! I the Trinity. I was just trying to right? think of something I could sing that would go no, with that, and I don't I, have any. There's nothing. I got nothing. But it's the Trinity. It's a it's a powerful number. I just want to say. I just okay. want to put that out there. Okay. okay hi. Cool. I believe you. Hi. We're, I just want to tell our audience that we're sitting in Sam's office at Coast Magazine, yes. uh, where she is the executive editor and my sometimes boss, because I'm so lucky to freelance for the luxury lifestyle magazine that is Coast Magazine. We call it the Prestige Magazine of Orange County. The because Prestige Magazine of Orange County. It and is. And it has been that for 26, 26 years. 26 years. Yeah. No, I, I haven't. How incre- incredible that is, considering, like the climate today with news and print publications. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. What am I, what, what do you yeah, want me to like, say yeah, about that? I'm no, it is. I mean, it's it's a real privilege to still work in media at a time that is so tumultuous and so journalists are so besieged right now and they really truly honest to god are not only by the forces that be out in culture at large right now. <clears throat> For which we we will not name names, but mm. but also too just the economic realities of being owned by you know six out of the ten major media corporations are owned by hedge funds, which means that profits don't go back into the media companies, and that's a challenge, mm. and that's a real barrier. To and you've worked in the you've worked in the you know the newspaper industry for a large part of your career. Mm-hmm. Um, that's me, my MFA, baby. Yes, that's my MFA. Good kind. Sorry, no, there are other good kinds. Um, but do you like it? Feel to me, it feels like, or maybe I'm just because I haven't noticed before. Uh, you know, have journalists like always been the enemy of the people? I say, um, not to the not to the degree. A friend of mine was getting off a plane the other day, and she and she said that uh, she's going past the cockpit, and the and the freaking uh, pilot is talking to one of the. Oops, sorry. Is talking to one of the you know attendants and was talking about the fake news and media, and she turns around. She says, "Excuse me, when when people get on this plane, is it are you a fake pilot? Is that a fake landing? Are you a fake professional?" And the guy didn't know what to say. But that you you never used to hear that before. And then she pulled out her pen. That, and like, then did she her pulled pen out drop and just, just boom boom. Off the plane. Um, yeah, it was never it was never that toxic in society at large but certainly you're, hey we're meant to be uh, the enemy of of the power structures we're supposed right. to piss people off right. um, that has always been the job of the journalist to say why to say really to be the skeptic in society and sometimes you're not beloved for that right. um, I am not as you know I am not the daily beat journalist I am not a um, I don't want to use the term muckraking, but I'm, I'm not the watchdog journalist that a lot of my colleagues are. Um, I did that a little bit, but I was, never, I was never that great at it, frankly. It takes a certain personality type. 
um, to be a really great journalist in that respect. But I quickly realized what I am is more of a, there's a term in journalism, solutions-based journalism. I like to look at the context of something and talk about the context, talk about the, the things that are being done to, um, to improve a situation or to understand a situation. That's not, you might think of that as good news journalism, but I don't think of it that way. I think that we need to have the total picture in journalism in order to really inform um, and inspire people and not drive them under with, with a sense of hopelessness. Mm. Anyway, that's a, little, that's a little rant. So what were we going to talk about? I love your rants. And Thank I'd also you. like to point out that Samantha Dunn is half Italian. So she talks a lot with her hands. I do. So if you're hearing hearing like ticks and scrapes <laughs> and weird thumping noises, it's because this is a very animated conversation. It's true. On one end, <laughs> I, on the other hand, am very Canadian. You are. And reserved. You and are. don't move very much at all. You're pretty much a zombie. Yeah, I'm a zombie. Yeah. Pretty Canadian zombie. You're, you're pretty much a mannequin right across from me. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, but it's true. You know, my mom always used to talk. Look at me now. Okay, I'm... I'm looking at yeah. you, but what, is, what do they see? I, they see nothing. Shaking your hands <laughs> I'm wildly. I'm shaking my hands here. wildly. Okay, so Sam has written three books. The Fictional Lies. Wait, and I put, like, I've Fictional written, Lies. I've, fr- I've written, I've written okay. technically more, but under my name. Under okay. Samantha Dunn's name, yes. she has written three books. Yes. The fictionalized, and I'm using the air quotes, Failing Paris. Yes. Because we all know. It is fictionalized. It is fictionalized, not fiction. Right. Uh, and the memoir is not by accident, not by accident, and Faith in Carlos Gomez. That's correct. And I edited the collection, Women on the Edge, writing from Los Angeles. I co-edited that with Julianne Ortali. Are you also collection. able to talk about books that you have ghostwritten for people? Pretty much no. No. Although... I might, because he just sadly, for many of his fans, died last year. Um, I, I wrote the book um, Unleashing the Warrior Within with Richard Mackowitz. Mm-hmm. But, and this was a self-defense? Yeah, no, this was a, oh, using the principles of combat to achieve your goals. Ooh. Yes. Okay. Yeah, but uh, I don't have I don't have my name on any of my ghostwritten books. Okay. Mostly because that's in my contract. But I'm the type of ghostwriter, or I have been. I haven't done this in, in a while now because it's it's its own skill and it takes up its own space in your life and your psyche. But the minute I put my name on something, I want to have my my ego is involved. I want to have my voice your in there. Voice, yeah. But if I'm just really truly a ghost and yeah. absent then I am you know free to really kind of inhabit the point of view of that character and write from their right from their experience without getting in the without my wanting it to be something else getting in the way also not to sound pure mind you it's also you also get a lot more money up front right. so there you go right well you know we gotta yeah. pay the bills you gotta pay the bills you gotta, keep us in gotta pay the bills exactly yes. Precisely correct. Um, so, for the audience, talk about what it means to be a ghostwriter. Like, what does that look like? Uh, well, it depends. I mean, sometimes uh, someone very famous with a big story comes to you, and an agent contacts you, and they say, "Listen, we need to we need to hook you up as a writer to tell this person's story." So, there's that. Um, and also, sometimes people come to you. Um, 
well, with Richard's book, Richard didn't have any idea that he wanted to write a book. He was, he'd just gotten out of the Navy SEALs and was teaching this form of self-defense, and I was going to do a story on him for a, for a magazine. And he started talking about what his whole worldview was, and I said, oh, this isn't, this isn't a self-defense article from a men's magazine. This is, this is a book. You know, Stephen Covey's you know, Seven Principles of Highly Effective People or something like that was, was a popular self-help book at the time. And Wayne Dyer and a, a whole bunch of other people were writing these books. And I realized what Richard was saying from his experience as a Navy SEAL, it was more about a mindset than about the tactics of a, of a soldier. So I said, hey, why don't we put together a book proposal and it was me who said, okay, let, let's organize this. Let's take this. Let's take this to my agent. So sometimes that happens where you as the writer see something and, and make it happen. But um, most of the time it's the other way around. People come to you and say, hey, I need, I need a pen for hire. You know, you, you got your pen and your yeah. you know, laptop and your holster and you go, whoosh, whoosh. right, right, right. I'm the one. You're the one. Do, 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 do. do you think do, do, that do. <laughs> do you think that creative nonfiction writers or memoirists like do you think that we have more of a tendency to see like everything in a story like or the story in everything or do you think that's just writers in general? Just writers in general. I think people in general. Yeah. We are not. You've heard me rant about this. We are nothing but story. Yeah. We are native storytellers. We do nothing but tell stories. We being human animals. Yeah. We are just story machines. Yeah. Our whole consciousness is created around the stories we tell about ourselves, about our country, about everything. We're just story generators. So the difference in a writer is they're able to take that one step back and, and be more active um, builders of their narratives, mm. I think. Okay. That's what I think. So I, there. I like it. And I, I tend to agree. Well... There we go. Yeah. We've finally agreed on something. I love that you keep saying, like, oh, you've heard me rant about this. You like, have. But that's why you're here, because oh. I have heard you rant about so many of these things, and, and they're so powerful, and it's what makes you such a, you know, everyone's favorite author evening host Aww. time and time again. Everyone loves you. That's only because I swear and slap them. And, you know, and you're, well, you're just, like, real, and you're, you give such great advice, and you, and you are personable, and you tell great stories, and... And then I just was thinking back to uh, when David Bowie died, and you and I were like bawling in the uh, author evening, the, and all, yeah. all you wanted to do was drink wine and talk about David Bowie. It's true. And the I mean, didn't really know David Bowie's music. Oh my God, I I, like I have you? blocked that out as a traumatic memory. <laughs> Can you imagine? There are people in the world who do not know that the man holding together the fabric of the universe had just evaporated. Yeah. That was shocking to me. David Bowie, I yeah, my nine-year-old yeah. knows who David Bowie is. <laughs> yeah, it was intense. That was an intense Oh, thing. dude. That was heavy. That was I really know. heavy. I still get sad about it. I cried for days. Me too. And yeah. then and then Prince died. Yeah. He was like a, he was like a, for me, a secondary god, yeah. right? That Like you have the pantheon and then the demigods. Prince was kind of a demigod. Do you think me. they're still there? Like They must be. They're trying. It's not the same. They they yes. must, I don't know. So tell us about how you came to be our author evening, our favorite author evening host with Emerging Voices. Well, it's good luck and charm and good looks, too. Oh, of course. Um, no, how did I... I don't even remember how you guys roped me into this whole EV thing initially, but 
I'm grateful that you did because it's one of the, and I'm not being nice here, it is one of the most powerful and important things that I've done in my life as a teacher. Um, so initially, I think, it's, this is before I was on any selection committee, I do believe, mm-hmm. and I don't even remember the year. This predates me. Pro- oh, way. Yeah. This was yeah. before you stumbled in in your bad attitude to my classroom, <laughs> which is another story I yes, will tell later. I know, I know. Uh, <laughs> and I was contacted by, I think, the ex- um, uh, director of the program or someone someone I don't even remember in the program to um, to be a mentor for mm-hmm. a writer. Her name was Lori oh, Owen. Owen. And um, I said, sure. I, I was doing a lot of teaching and so I had that experience with Lori and I realized, and this was this was a younger version of the program. Yes. There weren't as many elements to the program as there are now. Yeah. And I realized that this was an amazing opportunity for any writer who wanted to to get their feet on the ground in the literary community and have a have a plan for going forward, have a have a, a systematic way to develop their craft and, and to enter the community of literary citizens. And then I was asked to be on the selection committee. I think at that time, because they had so few people they could hit up. I'm just joking. Maybe they maybe they had more, but um, and so I was on the selection committee. I think a number of times. Yeah. I think I don't even remember. At least two, yeah. possibly three. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, of course, as you know, I was teaching a lot of of classes, and I was coming across these amazing voices and these amazing students, and so I became the one woman kind of um, pimp uh, for yeah. <laughs> for Evie. Yeah. Like, hey, you got I I'll hook you up, babe. Yeah. Yeah, I'll write you a rec. You get in that program. You, you or you try to get in that program because that's really going to um, set your way forward. And so, yeah, that's Why how. Why do you think it's so important for people that don't have MFAs? Because you've said to me before, like, I wish I had it. Oh. I mean, you, Sam. Um, why do you think it's so important? Well, people can stumble around clueless for years. They can stumble around clueless for decades. And what do I mean by that? They they have no frame of reference for what is for what is great work, for what uh, the conversation in literature, the conversations in literature in plural are, for how to enter uh, the publishing world for for anything. They they don't. They have the impulse to write, and so the, the the thing that they do is they sit home and they write novel after bad novel after bad novel, and it never goes anywhere, and they become resentful, and they it's a missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. It's a missed opportunity for their talent, mm-hmm. and I never want to see any talent go to waste. We're, we desperately need everyone's talent in the world, and I, I don't want to sound like too... You know, Marianne Williamson here. Okay, I I hate being. We know you're not like that. You know, I hate being considered <laughs> nice, and I hate being considered like uplifting or any of that shit. But yeah. truly, if we're gonna get out of the mess that we're in, we need everybody operating at a hundred percent. Right. So if you want to be a writer, then here's at least one way forward for you. Yeah. Well, you were my. You, you know, you're my OG mentor. You always will be, and I'll never forget because I still have the the pages. The page of my memoir in progress, you know, 17 years later. I hope so. It's been taking. And you used to write everything in green pen. 
and you would print on the back of old things yes. because you didn't want to waste paper because they were printing a lot out. That's we right. We were doing all of our edits on printed paper. Mm -hmm. And you said, you are doing the thing that is ultimately impossible to teach. Keep doing it. That's right. And I'll never forget that because right. I so badly needed to hear that um, because I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't have a background, any background. Like I didn't have an English degree. I didn't know. I was only reading books and trying to emulate like what I saw on the page. I know. You were pretty clueless at that point. Totally. And I still believe that <laughs> that is the truth. But um, let's talk about the idea of, of like workshop and being the darling of the workshop and getting stuck in the workshop and like how, like how, how do you see yeah. the dynamics of the workshop play out? And yeah. Like, what is your advice so, to writers? So, so Amanda already knows this, but for those listeners out there, yes. I always say, um, do you, you know, do, do you want to be like um, Cheryl? And I won't use the last name because mm -hmm. she might, might be listening. You want to be like Cheryl? Do you want to be like Lola? Do you want to be like Julianne? You know those writers and they look at me blankly and I say what you don't know them they were the fucking stars of the workshop right. they were the ones who could do absolutely no wrong they were the ones whose pages were fawned over and you know what they did with that absolutely nothing yeah. and now that I understand it I understand that they were trapped in two ways one is they had constant validation. They were never uh, challenged in a way that perhaps would make them get outside of their bag of tricks. And two, as you know, good, bad, or indifferent, talent or no talent, ultimately a career is about ass in chair right, and right. persevering over, over obstacles. No one's gonna like all your work all the time as painful as that is, and as wrong as that is, reader, as wrong as that is, no, yeah. kidding. But no one's gonna like you all the time. So the first time, and I can, I can tell you from experience dealing with some of these writers, the first time that they went, ventured out into the world and got a rejection, it was they were crushed. Yeah. They didn't go any farther. Yeah. And that, that's really a sad, toxic thing. Yeah. Uh, for as annoying as they are in class, <laughs> it's it's ultimately to their detriment, right? Yeah, yeah. And and workshop is not real life. Workshop is meant to be a, you know, is meant to be a training wheel. Mm -hmm. It's not meant to be the the bicycle race to yeah. extend that metaphor farther than it should go. Yeah. So tell us about your own workshop experience coming up as a young writer, a my young literary, literary writer, writer yeah. darling. Well, this. <laughs> The workshop that I came up in is the molecular opposite of what I want to create in my own workshops. Um, it was very powerful, but very toxic. The, uh, the writer Kate Braverman, who I know that Janet Fitch has talked about, I know that, did you have our dearly departed Les Plesko on this thing? Or was he? Oh, that's yeah. a sad, sad thing. Les was teaching at UCLA, so I know, like, when I was at EV, Johnny was in his class, mm -hmm. and and I think Azarin too. Azarin, yeah, very much so, yeah. yeah. Um, so there was a whole group of us, right? Who, Kate, what Kate Braverman would do is she would troll her classes at UCLA. She only taught weekend classes, so she could um, headhunt the people that she wanted to work with, mm -hmm. and then she'd come up to after class and say. 
well, you know, that writing that you did today was miserable, but however, I do see something in you. So um, here's my card, and if you're interested, you can enter my workshop. And at that time, there was really no way that I knew of to get into the literary community. UCLA was fantastic. That was that was the place. I actually wrote a, an article for their their magazine on the 20th anniversary about the program. That that has really been the core. But if you if you wanted more than what the offering was at the time, um, there wasn't there wasn't a way to be cool outside of class. Do you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. You didn't know where the parties were. You didn't know who, how to meet the people. How do you do that? And so here was Kate Braverman, who was you know she was a um, she, O. Henry Award winner, very much in the literary scene. I had come to her through an interview she did on NPR. I mean, she was she was that writer and very rock and roll, very glamorous. So, so I came into that class. Um, oh, by the way, I want to say that there was also at that time, as there still is today, beyond Baroque. Mm -hmm. But that was still more the poets, poets. right? That like was like poets. the beat poets. Yeah. That was very much the, the that vibe and. So I, I'm not a poet, so I didn't feel that that was my thing. We, okay. We've recently found out that there are some Sam Dunn poems out there that I'm going to read okay. at your funeral. Okay. You period. are not. Yes. Shut up. Mm -hmm. Oh, that gives me. That gives me. You a know. Anxiety. Yeah. yeah. No, that gives me a reason to like not. not you die? know, not die. <laughs> like to take care of myself and start exercising. The thought that the thought that someone might read my poetry. Um, but yeah, anyway, so there, there were those scenes. I think John Retchie still might have been teaching at that point. Jack Grapes, you know, mm -hmm. who's it was, it was probably still around. He's yeah. been teaching. John... Um, uh, Stop tapping on the table. Ah, uh, sorry. Anyway, there's some really great uh, other writers, but I, I didn't know about them. Yeah. Who found me was Kate Braverman. Yeah, yeah. So I ended, end up in, in this workshop, and it really was... It was kill or be killed. Yeah. She she really fostered this kind of coliseum um, <laughs> culture in the workshop. You know, you entered and you were going to kill someone. You were going to come out maimed. But if you did not die, you would come back for the next round. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. um, and so... How was it structured? Like, give me an idea. Like, how often did you meet? How many people? Like, how did you oh, workshop pages? So... Like, what did it mean? So she had a workshop group in the morning. She called them the housewives. Okay. So she, they were very wealthy, yeah. predominantly white, um, Beverly Hills matrons that came and paid her, I, I'm, I'm sure, an exorbitant amount of money to yeah. sit in her presence. And then in the afternoon, that's when the ragtag rock and roll, you know, like yeah. Motley Crue came in. And needless to say, I was in that crowd. Mm -hmm. And we actually physically ate the leftovers of the rich matrons. Right. It was because we didn't bring anything. Right. Anyway, and so we always had to bring seven pages. If we didn't have pages, we were kicked out. We I just, it. it was immediate. It was, once a week? It was uh, twice a month. Okay, okay. Uh, so it was immediate, immediate expulsion. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so. Did that, she like shame you? Of course. Oh, did she shame you? <laughs> This is a woman yeah. who, after you would read something, yeah. there would be this silence, and she she had it one. It was it was like she was this dark goddess, and it, on her on her left was Donald Raleigh, uh -huh. the incredible novelist poet, and on her right was Les Plesco, the incredible novelist, and so they were her like demon, you know, her, children. Her Trinity. Yes, exactly. Yeah, her yeah, Trinity, yeah, yeah. going back to the three. Yeah, and she'd say, she'd go. 
<sighs> she had long black hair and she had dressed in black and she'd swing her hair over and she'd say, well, that was a crime against the page. <laughs> and then it was just so, she couldn't deign to do any more critique and that, that's when Donald and, and Les would come in with some more constructive critique. And then people would go around the room and say what they hated about your work or what they liked about your work. Um, but if they liked something that Kate didn't like, then they too might be shamed or right. mocked or right. in other in other ways set outside the circle of of brilliance. She uh, speaking of which, she she would have us hold hands and say, "Let us pray to whatever God there is in heaven or hell or whatever, uh -huh. to that we we will we will we will fight against mediocrity." Oh my god, this is amazing. Yeah, she was. It was all, it was always like a séance any yeah. anytime we went there. Yeah. So it was really I I think there were a lot of very toxic things yeah. about that workshop and and it was how how what you got out of it was kind of dependent on how you entered. Yeah. You know, I have always told the story about Janet Janet Fitch, my dear Janet Fitch. Yes. Is, who of course wrote White Oleander, Painted Black, um, The Revolution of um, Marina M, I believe, mm -hmm. um, and other fan, fine, fine works, she would just get trashed. I mean, for whatever reason, Kate was brutal to her. And she was never the cool kid, you know, but she was, all, she was just relentless and focused and never wavered. She always had new work, she always had rewrites. Mm -hmm. She was just ba-bam, ba-bam, ba-bam mm -hmm. on it. And I actually uh, asked Janet about this a few years ago, and she said, you know, she she was at a different place. She already had a, she'd had somewhat of a career already. Mm -hmm. uh, she'd published a kid's book. She she had she'd done journalism. She had you know a kid at home. Yeah. So she didn't need from Kate what I needed from Kate. Yeah. I needed I needed to be remothered. I was looking for mothers. Yeah. Right. I was looking for a whole new evolution and of course I picked like the you know the, mean the, mommy. the most the <laughs> meanest most toxic mom I could yeah. po possibly mm. pick mm. pattern pattern sensing a pattern <laughs> paging Dr. Freud paging Dr. Freud so yeah some of the things in that workshop hit me I think emotionally a lot harder than it hit people like like Janet Fitch or like Mary Rako yeah. Mary Rako was a, wrote the memory room yeah, and yeah. this is why I came another genius writer she also she had her PhD from Harvard. She was she thought Kate was amusing. She had no well, that's emotional the thing. Like, stake. I think about that like oh that was a crime against the page. Yeah. Like, did anyone just ever bust out laughing, or was everyone just so terrorized that it was almost like I I think people some people did snicker probably to themselves. Right. I was not among them. I was like oh, I must be like her. Right. I must be like her because that's <laughs> that's what a female writer is. Uh, and that was and that was another thing too. I mean, yeah. she was a woman. She was a woman, right. and she was successful. Yeah. And the only model I had for women, well, there was Joan Didion, who was uh, you know in my pantheon, yeah. but she seemed so far away from reality that I would never be able to meet her. Yeah. But the, all the other writers that I knew of that I had in my house that I referenced were white guys yeah. and they were white guys as I always say you know who went to boarding school in Connecticut yeah. and they were you know they were men of a certain caliber or they were Jewish or they were you know they were wasps or they were they were yeah. Jewish or they were they were outside of my 
frame of reference and I could never be like them. But here was a rock and roll chick yeah. who um, dated musicians and rode on the back of motorcycles and and had grown up with a single parent. And I thought, oh, right. I can approach this. Right. This is what I know. I love that because it goes back to this idea of like seeing ourselves in not, not just on the page, but in the writers yeah. presented to us. Because I, I think that's such a such an important element of emerging voices. It's so vital. It is so vital and, and I'm so happy to see emerging voices just increasingly go in that direction of this of this diversity of voices and point of view and life experience. Yeah. I just, I think, I think it's right on target and, and it has always had that intention. Right. But I think that sometimes it's like, it can be scary because when you're working for an organization or you, you obviously are held to certain standards or there's certain rules and like you're trying to kind of, you're scared to experiment or like step outside of the norm sure. because you don't know how it's going to work and you sure. have grantors to answer to and you have funders and like all that. So it's, it's exciting to be able to be given the freedom, like for me as the fellowship manager, to be like, hey, let's try this, and if it doesn't work, we won't do it again. Right. You know, because such a, since I've been there since 2015, and I know Libby Flores implemented this, you know, the in the years before me, was like a really strenuous like, evaluation process, and like, did you like this writer? Why didn't you like them? So that when we were inviting authors back for author evenings or doing the voice class, it was always like, how did it work the year before? How right. can we make it better? And that's yeah. something that we've, we're really uh, focused on. You guys have done such an amazing job. I'm not just being nice to you yeah. again. Yeah. You have done an amazing job. The, the idea of the program was always great, yeah. but the rigor of the program early on wasn't the extent right. to the extent that it is today. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're really, I mean, you're refining every year, and I think that's amazing. Well, that's why I think, I think too, it's like sometimes I'm like, well, I'm not an administrator, but at the same time, it's like being a writer is like you know what you need for your career. Yeah. Like how can I give this to the people that are coming after me or to that's the right. new fellows? And I think that's really important. That's right. But I want to talk about so so did failing Paris because I know because I've stole I've stolen this line. Fail, fail, failing Paris starts with this is how it is, right? Because mm-hmm. I've stolen the line from my own my own writing. Oh, you little minx. Uh, which I've read in your <laughs> workshop, so you would know. Um, but I want to know. How, how did um, what was the genesis of failing Paris? Like, because oh, I love this story. She loves this. It's like it's like mommy, mommy, tell me that story again, again and again, and again, again and again yeah. and again, again in Kate Braverman's workshop. Yeah. Again, uh, I was trying to write. Oh, this is an interesting part of cultural appropriation, perhaps. I was trying to write at that time in my career um, stories, magic realism stories about uh, centered around a small town in northern New Mexico. And I was very influenced by um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, by Rudolfo Anaya, by Sandro Cisneros, all of these writers, because I do think, I do have some part of me that feels like I should be mestizo. Like there's some part, like it's where I grew up, it's the friends I had, it's the, you know, this little huerita in the middle of northern New Mexico. I feel like that is more my culture. Of course, it's not. I can always step out of it and I'm white girl. But I I felt a deep, deep, um, well, sense that that was my culture as well. Yeah. so anyway, I was writing these stories that were just miserable. They were about a one was about a dyslexic bruja, you know, a yeah. witch who uh-huh. always got her spells backwards, so nothing would turn out. Right, so nothing. She get the opposite of what she wanted. She get the opposite yeah. of what she wanted, but it never went anywhere. And then, and then there was one talking dog 
I don't know why. I don't remember what the dogs hell I was. Dogs. Dog so, I don't know. I don't know what I was doing with that. <laughs> it was just. What do you mean? That's I, let's day. just say I was not Ben Laurie. Okay? okay. I could not. They love were not. You love you, Ben Laurie. <laughs> they were not working. Yeah. Um, or Ramona Asabel, who does yeah. this amazing. I whatever. Yeah. Not me. So I was. Hey, and you gave it a shot. I did. Poetry, I was miserably. <laughs> I was miserably trying these short stories, and people would were kind of like. You know, mediocre. Every once in a while, I'd have something that was somewhat successful, and and then I would be in the in crowd, and then I would fail the next week and be in the out crowd, whatever. And but what was true about my life was that I thought that my life was something that was completely uninteresting. I mean, the world from which I came was completely uninteresting. It was not the material of which a writerly life was made. Yeah. Meaning, you know, a single mom in a trailer in northern New Mexico. With a crazy grandmother, and um, and I became a francophile very early in my life as a way to escape this. There are some other psychological reasons for that too. But what does that mean? Like, did you go to high school and there was like French club and you were making like crepes and French onion soup? That's and, exactly right. Yeah, because I did that also. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, it started in second grade we, for some wow. weird reason. In New Mexico. Well, no, actually, Hollywood, we were we were in we it was even weirder than that. We for second grade, I was in Washington State, okay, where my aunt and uncle had a ranch, okay, and my mom. Mom was working for a time on the Tulalip Indian Reservation, mm -hmm. and I was going to school on the reservation. Strangely, weirdly, they had a French class in second grade. I don't know what that was about. It was awesome. some. Yeah. It was awesome. Mm -hmm. It was some kind of educational, pedagogical, right. whatever. It was yeah. probably students from the local university, whatever. Right, right, right. But for Getting whatever credit. reason, I learned to I learned to say "Comment allez-vous?" and yeah. you know count to five or whatever yeah. and so that gave me did you learn Petit Prince did you read that Le Petit Prince yeah. no I didn't I didn't read Le Petit Prince mm -hmm. until I was in high school okay. okay but um yeah so that was a little bit too sophisticated for a second grader but that so that gave the germ of that and then my grandmother who who was a delusional kind of you know uh I, I'm blanking on the word. She she basically thought she was Ethel Kennedy in a trailer park. But okay. um, so she had a perfume called Muguet de Bois, you know, the lilies of the, mm -hmm. the field. Mm -hmm. And then uh, another perfume, Je reviens, mm -hmm. means I, I, I return. I return. Yeah, yeah. yeah I return. And so um, my 20 years of French. Exactly. Kind of there we go. Yeah. Um, and I was always fascinated with that perfume and the names of the perfume and. And then when I got to high school and could take French, well, first of all, I took Spanish because that was the most useful thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but in my class, everybody made total fun of me because I was... Your accent. I was my accent and yeah. because I was the only Anglo in my class. Really? Yeah, because where I went to school, it was probably 80% or more, um, they would say Hispanic in New yeah. Mexico which is not what we would say in California, yeah. or they would say Hispanic, or maybe Chicano. Yeah. The Chicano movement was just kind of building at that point. But, um, but yeah, I didn't want to be made fun of. Yeah. And so there was an opening in French class. There were like five people taking French, so I just yeah. hopped over to French. And I loved it. It was, it was something that I just adored. And so I was the kid in the trailer park, true story, you know, trying to decipher Baudelaire, you know, yeah. I... Had a had a you know poetry book in third grade, uh, yeah ninth grade ninth grade but yeah but yeah I was that I was that person and then my French teacher was this 
wonderful odd duck who, yeah, would make us French onion soup and yeah. we'd go over and we'd try to speak French to each other. Mm-hmm. And then, oh my gosh. But she did take us to Quebec. I mean, on a bus. Please tell me you went on a bus. No, because we were in New Mexico. We flew. Oh my gosh. Where it was, did the money come from for this? She, my suspicion was, well, we sold. You know, we sold candy, (laughs) but no, we should, we sold candy and stuff throughout the year. But my suspicion was, and she, I think she was a very wealthy woman. She was single. And I think she underwrote a lot of things for us. I really, really do. Yeah. Okay. And, um, so we end up going to the city of Quebec and I got to actually say merci and bonjour to people like in real time. Yeah. Who and they most of the time were nice enough to respond back in French, even though oh, they didn't got need lucky. to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> French people are not super sweet. They're not. In general. They were not. Yeah. They were not. I'm, it might have been too that I was really cute when yeah. I was fourteen. Yeah, I've but, seen pictures. It's true. Yeah, it's yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah. So so back to the That's story the about story. class. This is all. Yeah. This is all part of the context, right? This is all totally. backstory you need yeah. to understand. So yeah. in this moment of workshop a, a girl hit, brings in a story about I'll never forget it it was it was a story about someone's junior year abroad and how her mummy and daddy came from wherever you know Connecticut, Connecticut. Okay, I'm always yeah. I'm always Connect, picking sorry, on Connecticut yeah I'm always picking on Connecticut yeah. and they and they were staying at the Georges Cinq you know the big fancy hotel in oh, Paris right yes yeah. Sure. And and they went to the Eiffel Tower and oh aren't the French so much more intelligent than we are and oh wouldn't it be great to stay in this Paris and I'm in this Paris in this Paris and I'm just getting I I started to flop sweat. Well, you forgot to say that you spent a year abroad. Yes, very important. Yeah. I had spent most of my life trying to become fluent in French. Went out with a French guy. Thought I was going to marry him. Um, came to my senses. <laughs> Sorry, Pierre. Um, and, <laughs> of course, Pierre Laroche, um, who now teaches English. Anyway, but, uh, but then so finally... you had been there for a year. I had been there for a year. Now this woman is telling the story. Many, many, many terrible things happened in that right. year. She's telling the story, and I'm just, I'm thinking about the real Paris that I know. Yeah. And it gets to me, and I say, this isn't how it is. And Her no, face is so scary, right? Yeah, I was, this is how it is. <laughs> and I'm and to the point where the girl I thought was going to burst into tears, and the only thing she says was, "Well, how is it, Sam?" Yeah. And I went to unleash the torrid of knowledge upon her, and I just froze. And and I was so disturbed after that class, I raced home, and the first thing I did was, "This is how it is." Period. And I just, uh, I just poured out this monologue about this is how it is, and the and the rain and the shit, the and dog the, shit, and the, the dog shit, the dog and the street, shit. and the mold, and the walls that have never been dry, and this, you know, this aching desire that you feel all the time in Paris, and you you will never live up to it, and it will never live up to your expectations, mm. and uh, blah, blah 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 blah. And I didn't have anything other than those pages to read the next week. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, I'm going to be destroyed, but I will go ahead and read this. And then I read, and you know that awkward silence before anyone says anything, and you think you're going to be eviscerated slowly. And I looked up, and I was crying, and everybody else was crying too. And Les Plesko started clapping. Oh, my God. And I knew that something had happened then. 
So yeah. then it took another seven years to finish that book. Right, right. Yeah. And so then why fiction? Why fiction? Why a novel? I didn't know anything about memoir. Mm -hmm. I, d I thought that you just wrote, uh, you just wrote fiction. Yeah. And so, and also too, it, it was a novel. Mm -hmm. Fiction, hiding behind the veil of fiction and being able to condense characters and invent characters and, and reimagine situations gave me the psychological distance I needed to, to cure myself, if you will, from, mm -hmm. from, from that part of my narrative. Mm. What do you think about the idea that um, memoir and creative nonfiction is as therapy or as, as uh, you know, a way to deal with your trauma? Yeah, if you go in thinking that you're that that is the reason, you'll write very very bad memoir. Now, I say that, and I do know for a fact it's not a belief; it's a knowledge that I have that if you write a memoir, if you get to the end of a, a piece of work about your life that is framed, you know, a, a a framed section of your life, you will change your relationship to that narrative. There's no question. You yeah. you do. You you are not cured, but you are changed in relationship to that. But but that is a byproduct. The first rule, the first the first obligation you have as a writer to is to create a work of art that other people can enter. Now, what happens to you is of no consequence to the reader, right? Yeah. Philip Lopate said readers are gossips. They care nothing for your well-being. And V.S. Pritchett said, it's all in the craft. You get no credit for living. Mm. And I think about that a lot. You, mm. I don't, you know, I'm sorry that you had this abuse happen to you. I'm sorry all of these terrible things happened to you. And I don't care. Mm -hmm. I just want a good story. Mm -hmm. I just want a story that's transcendent. Whatever you need to do to get me there, God bless you. But get me there. So Speaking you, as a reader. Right, right. No, but I, I look at that, I think about that as an instructor because that's one of the reasons that I like thought, well, a million reasons because you're always right and you're always wonderful. Thank you. I am um, always right. I'm always right. Always right. Always. Uh, but it was that you, the way that you, the way that you approached memoir and, and class and it was like, I have always believed myself that it's like once it's on the page, it's a character and it has nothing to do with me anymore and now we're making it a story. And that's not always the case when you go into nonfiction classes. So I don't do you, go into them, so please tell me. Well, what do you say when someone signs up for your class? Like, is there a speech that you give? Like, do you, do you say this is how it's going to be and let people know up front? Yeah. What are the parameters that you set for well, a creative nonfiction workshop? Well, I think those parameters come out when I give the golden rules for workshopping. Okay. And I tell them, I tell the workshop E that your first job is to one. What is it, Amanda? What's the first rule of workshop? If your work is being workshopped, what is your first? You don't rule? talk. Yes, and I say it as shut the fuck up. Yes, you do. Yeah, right. you don't. You don't <laughs> nod your head. You don't. <laughs> you don't. I was like terrified because I was like, I have no idea. I had so yes. Yeah, you just. Yes, sir, may I have another, you right? Just take it. Yes. You just take it. And you do that by writing. You write, physically write as people are speaking. You write your notes, you write your thoughts, you write whatever is coming down in that critique so you can not feel that reflexive desire to be defensive. Right. Because the minute we get into the, oh, but it really happened, but oh, my feelings are hurt, 
that's the death of art, okay? Yeah. You, you can have your private reaction over here, but as we are discussing a work of art, then, or trying to make something, a, a work of art of this material, then you, you need to... <laughs> 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 so, so then at the end, you can ask for clarification. If there was something someone said that you truly didn't understand, if I used the term objective correlative, or if I, if I talked about the profluence of the narrative, or if I, if I talk about the, uh, something being an aphorism, and you're like, I just don't understand those writerly, jargony terms. Yeah. Can you yeah. tell me? Then, but, but that, too, can be the passive-aggressive's way to get back into the conversation. As, a, as in, oh, Amanda, you didn't understand what I was trying to do there? Or, I love the Thurston Howell voice. Like, whenever <laughs> someone's being uppity, it's like... It's always got to go. Back in. It's true. So the first one is, shut the fuck up. The second one is, uh, you don't use the writer's name. Like, you don't no. say the writer did it. Oh, wow. You just really... Well, I don't you know, just, it's been so long. It's been so long. No, it, the, I'm just talking about the the... the person being workshop the writer yeah you 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 shut up you take notes, take notes and then you ask for clarification oh, okay. at the very end okay. what you do what you do as a workshop as the critiquer yes. is this. this the first thing you do is hold as the golden rule a belief in the possibility of the work okay okay yeah. here's here's where a lot of workshops that i personally was in where they fell down they they being the the readers would say oh well this you know this this whole idea of writing from the from the third person plural in in sitting bull's voice that's just never going to work you can't do it. you can't do that or you whatever okay you you can't oh you can't write a memoir about an irish childhood that's already been done oh you can't you can't do this because fuck that you the possibility is there for every work i really believe that so you as as the reader have to hold in your heart and your head the possibility of the work for the for the writer it hasn't achieved it it's 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 not anything that is close to that platonic ideal but that exists so let's hold that as a possibility and now let's help the writer so um, and then let the writer come to their own conclusions about their goals, mm -hmm. okay? And then first we, in memoir classes, we always speak about the, the writer, uh, excuse me, the, the character in right. third person, yeah. right? He or she. We never say, you writer, Amanda, yeah. you, I don't like the way you, the choice that you made on page three. Right, right, right. You never yeah. do that. Yeah. And then, so the, that's, that's the second rule. The third rule is you, you tell the reader, or excuse me, you tell the writer what they're doing right, right? Where right. you're interested in. Yeah. Where you're interested, if you're interested in a concept, talk about that. If you're interested in the way they use the, the color blue on page two, tell them that. Because as, as weird as it is, we, we rarely know when we're hitting it. At yeah. least in the early stages, right. before we develop that internal editor, we just don't know where we're hitting it. And even now, sometimes I'm surprised where people say, "Oh my God, I love that," yeah. and I didn't think it was anything in particular. Yeah. Um, but so tell them, tell them what's working, because also too, you're giving them a toehold, right? You're giving them a way to scale that incredibly difficult mountain. You have to have a way to start going forward. You can't just say, this is all shit and it doesn't work and yeah. just go bury your head in the sand and, and, and give up. You I mean, you can't pull a Kate Braverman. 
You can't. I mean, honestly, I, I, I don't be scared now for my mental health. But there were times when I walked out of that workshop and I was fucking suicidal. I was like, what value do I have on this planet? Yeah. I am such an idiot. I will never get this. This is something I want more than anything else in, in my entire existence. And I am just not capable. I am constitutionally unable. Yeah. And I never want anybody to have that feeling. Ever, 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 ever. Because it's horrible. Yeah. And it can lead to you not being on the planet. Yeah. And so... Um, so you do that you tell them what's working and then and then you tell them and this is not being nice to them mm -hmm. this is the way people actually learn mm -hmm. okay yeah. um, if you don't have anything nice to say don't say anything at all yeah. right and then you say okay this is where I'm confused yeah. I'm confused by this this d didn't add up this and then you give them the deep critique yeah. and then um, after you do that you also have to remember not to be prescriptive to say, well, if you just change it to third person, or if you just if you just move this paragraph, line two, section B, and moved it to page one, don't avoid being prescriptive unless you're being paid for a line edit. Okay, right. that's a different thing entirely. But when you're just helping people develop their work in a critique situation, p readers are really good at telling you as a writer what's not working. They're almost universally inept at telling you how to fix it. Because it's only you, it's your story. Right. It's you're the one who, who has a sense of what you were trying for, what, what, what really deep themes you're working with. You, you're the one that can be aware of that. They can't be aware of that. I mean, it's, it's, it's something my old screenwriting partner, Ed Horowitz, used to tell me. We, I'd walk out of a meeting with him, uh, you know, for, for a script for, for Faith and Carlos Gomez, and I would just be mad as hell. Thinking, you know, what what are these idiots talking about? I I have to, you know, add a scene in with the, you know, w with a, a a Mexican caballero. What are they talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he'd say, okay, they're wrong, but respect the itch. Yeah. What okay. it, what he meant was the crit the critique might be all off and how it's telling you to fix it, but respect the fact that they are not truly they're not there's there are things within the text that are preventing them from engaging in a suspension of, of willing disbelief. Yeah. So they're not just smoothly entering the story. Right. So respect that. And now it's your job to figure out how to fix it. How to fix it. So you, um, I get hypnotized by you every time. So That's because talk, I'm so charming. I know, it's like I feel my eyes are getting dry from staring at you. <laughs> You so you had a claim with with uh, failing Paris and you won awards or nominated mm -hmm. for awards nominated uh -huh. for a pen award. Well, I was finalist for it. Finalist, finalist for, for a pen the award. Um, so what made you decide that the second book was going to be memoir? I didn't decide. It was it completely fell on me. It was by accident. Get it? What? 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 Step on you. Yeah, I just had a really horrible horseback riding accident. It was very dramatic. I was going to die. My leg was hanging off. A movie star happened to save me. I got helicoptered out. Lots of exciting things happened, and people wanted me to write about it. Yeah. And finally, my agent at the time, Peter Matson at Sterling Moore. And you were also writing for magazines at the yeah, time. Yeah, all the time. That's how I paid my bills. Yeah. And, um, yeah, when, <laughs> when my one of my editors, Stephanie Tuck at, the, at, at InStyle, this would never have been an, a story for InStyle, but she said... She said to me, I'll never forget it. She said, um, take notes. <laughs> take notes. Like As I'm in the hospital, yeah. she was like, oh, my God. And then what happened? What? She said, take notes. I love it. 
<laughs> but um, yeah, a lot of magazines wanted me to write about this. I did a big piece for O, the Oprah magazine, where they sent out a photographer. Yeah. And I looked very slim. And, and In your hospital bed? No, it was just after I got out of the hospital. Okay. No, I was I was in jodhpurs, and my horse was all groomed. Yeah. And a whole big thing. Um, did we mention it was the horse that crept on you? We, I'm just assuming that? that people go they read the freaking book. Go yeah, read yeah. the book. Yeah. Go read anyway. The book. Uh, so, uh, yeah. And so I started writing these essays, and it was my agent who said, "You, wow, this is a memoir. And I went, I don't know how to write a memoir. So I I started researching accident proneness. I thought I would write a, a nonfiction book about the nature of accident proneness. So because the journalist in you. Yeah, like always. Research. Right, exactly. Um, and then people said, no, I, I want to know more about the personal story. But, but that aspect in my work is always there. I mean, I, I think that our personal stories are, are fascinating and important. And they're made even more so when they're in conversation with a larger question. Mm. You know, this happened to me, but what does this mean? What does this mean in terms of, uh, of suicide? What does this mean in terms of, you know, breaking your neck, Amanda Fletcher? What yeah. does this mean in terms of uh, drug use? Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's part, of the, all of our stories are just this little part of a bigger picture. Yeah. Do you think that is, we're going to segue into this, this, the thing I kind of want you to close with, but do you think that um, having that, so originally you felt like your life, you know, wasn't worry, worthy of a story um, the way that you had grown up. And then suddenly it's like, it's almost unavoidable. Like, of course it is. Do you think yeah. that the outside validation like made that easier to accept or was that something you just knew internally? Like, this is, I have to write this story. The outside validation did help me because otherwise I would have just thought, well, this, um, yeah. Who cares? Yeah. Uh, who cares? Yeah. I and down again. I found, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But but that validation started way earlier when I had small pieces published of, or or even you know even in workshop when I had people respond to, to parts of Failing Paris, that were extremely autobiographical things that I was very ashamed of things I thought people would reject, we reject me wholesale if they knew any small part of the truth of my life, mm-hmm. and instead they opened up and embraced me even more profoundly than I could have ever imagined. So it started there. Um, and then and then really the change in me came, the evangelical part of me. Uh, and when I say evangelical, I mean I really believe that if we all grappled with our own stories on the page, all of us would be somewhat less of an asshole, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We really would. Yeah. I mean, it does change you that much. Yeah, Again, totally. It's not meant, I, I think if we go into it for therapy, we don't produce great writing, but we might produce good therapy. But if you, if you try to, to translate your experience for, for an, to enter the conversation for other people, to, to yeah. understand it and enter it, I think you're making everything better. You're making yourself better. You're making the world better. I really believe that. I yeah. really believe that. And that whole thing came about when I started to teach and I started to see people's stories. It's like your your ribcage cracks open when you start to teach memoir. Mm. And you realize the profound amount of suffering that's out there and the profound amount of brilliance and, and generosity and um, just sweetness and the whole complex 
patchwork of human experience is within everyone. Mm. And it really, it, it always humbles me. And I'm not just trying to be nice here. It really, really does. That's why I, that's why I still teach. I, yeah. I don't really have time to, but yeah. I have to do it. Yeah. I have to. I feel like I have to your do soul. it. Yeah, to some extent. it does. And I think it's an act of, it's my own little act of service that I can do. What do you think about uh, middle-aged white ladies taking uh, creative nonfiction classes? What do you think okay. about that generally? Here, here's, here's what I think. So as you know, I, I tell the story. So I was uh, coming out of a uh, teaching the UCLA writing studio, and a guy, a guy, mm-hmm. right, at the... Uh, he gets to talk like personality. He does talk like this. In my story, he does. He always does. They always do. All of the assholes across the world talk like this now. (laughs) (laughs) And he comes up to me and says, oh, you're the, you know, we're we're huddled over our little plastic cups of wine. And he says, oh, you're the the memoir teacher? And I said, "Um, yes, I teach memoir. He says, it's all just women who take your class, isn't it? And a hundred things happened in that moment. Um, So... At first, I did the usual thing that I do where I get defensive and I start to say, well, men take my class too, right. which is all kinds of wrong in so many ways, right. but I still do it. And then, and then shut I... Up. Shut up! Shut <laughs> up! And then I thought, then I thought back to an experience I'd had in class, and this is really the honest to God's truth. I'm, and, and, that, and that particular class was all women. And I'm looking out into the classroom, and I'm about to launch into my es- uh, my essay, my my point in the lecture where I talk about um, Saint Augustine's Confessions, and that being the kind of the first true memoir that we have. And you've heard this mm-hmm. a million times. And I swear to you, Amanda, it's, it was like an acid flashback. I saw these women, and they they were they were white, and they were black, and they were Latino, and they were and they were Asian, Great. and and they were this mi- there was this mix of old and young, and it was this great group. And it was as if I could see behind them. I can't describe it, but it was like suddenly the room was full of people. Mm-hmm. And I thought about, it hit me, how many generations, how many thousands of women were represented in that room by the, those those faces, how many women's stories we would never know, how many women had been erased from the fabric of history. Mm-hmm. We, nev- we, we only know them because we are physically here, mm-hmm. but who they are and what they experienced and what they thought and what they gave and what they suffered and wh- what they did and what, and what awfulness they did, all of it is what erased. Was what was yeah. done to them, what they did to, I mean, all of it was erased, erased. And it hit me that we are seeing in our culture right in our in our world culture right now especially especially in in industrialized countries but we're seeing this movement of women telling their stories for the first time we have this body of literature now that we have never had in the history of of the world we have all of these thousands and thousands of witnessing of lives of women's lives in particular of lives that have never entered the the canon of literature yeah. do you know what i mean yeah. And what is that going to mean for the rest of humanity going forward? I think I, I can only guess we've, because we've never had it before. Yeah. It is so important. It's so vital. And, so, um, and it's a radical act to tell your truth. Yeah. It is a radical fucking act to say, this is what happened to me. This is how I see the world. This is what I do in the world. 
and to put it down honestly so that other people can enter it and have a bit of hu- bit of empathy. Yeah. Um, so I said to the guy, yeah, I said, they're, I, basically I told him that they're, they're not women who take my classes. They're just radicals who take my classes. So I only teach radicals. So fuck you. I love it. Yeah. And then you pull out your pencil and you dropped it and you walked I away. did. I just went, boom. <laughs> boom. I, okay, I love this as a, as a point to to end. And we're going to have to do this again so that we can get you French rapping because I love yeah. it so much. Yeah, c'est que de marcher. So we, we've been trying to, you know, in all of the episodes, this is episode three, um, we want, we're ending on an, a, a writing exercise. Yeah. So, get, you know, throw it at us, Sam Dunn. Give us what you got. I would tell you to uh, do a timed writing exercise, right? And for 10 minutes, begin with a sentence, I remember. I remember, I remember, I remember, I remember. At the end of 10 minutes, stop, and then look back at what you have remembered and see if anything that you remember coalesces around a theme or a period of time, and then try to put those those threads in order. There, there might be two different or three different or five different things, but chances are they're going to circle around one or two time frames or themes, right? And so try to put them in order and then come back to it the next day and see where you go. I love you. Thank I love you, you to death. Mwah, mwah, mwah. Okay, Bye, guys. everybody. Bye. Pen America champions the freedom to write and believes that freedom of expression and literature are inseparable. Visit pen.org to learn more about what we do. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Join us. Be a part of the larger conversation. Support for EV comes from sources both big and small. Serious financial support comes from organizations like the Amazon Literary Partnership, California Arts Council, New Balloon and Catapult, Los Angeles County Arts Commission, the Ovation Foundation, Pasadena Literary Alliance, the Rosenthal Family Foundation, and UCLA Extension Writers Program. And let's not forget individuals like Jamie and David Wolf. We appreciate you. To the emerging voices themselves, this podcast is in support of everything you do and everything you've accomplished. Congratulations. We celebrate you. Thanks to 2012 EV Johnny Alfie for giving us our theme song, Linen, from his band, Tony and Johnny. And to the members of the Los Angeles literary community who have been showing up for us for more than 20 years, donating their time as mentors, committee members, author evening hosts, and masterclass instructors, I have leaned on each and every one of you for advice, and I appreciate you. You've been there to answer my questions, those of the fellows, as well as the questions of prospective applicants. You've written letters of recommendation, introductions, outreach essays, and blog posts. You've encouraged EVs to read at your events and said yes when we've asked you to read at ours. And to Dave Thomas, everything we know about public speaking, we learned from you. This is all just to say, thanks LA, sincerely. <laughs>